Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be looking at the final verses in chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. Chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. It's on page 979 in the red Bibles around you. I would encourage you you to listen as I read to you from Ephesians 6, verses 21 through 24. Paul says, So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and sisters, and love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to us. We thank you for preserving it and keeping it in such a way that we can read it today and be encouraged by it, be instructed by it. So we pray for the Holy Spirit to be at work. Take your word and press it into our hearts, our minds, our very lives. Help us to see who we are and help us to live as who we are this week ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're coming to the end of Ephesians. It's been uh, just about eight months that we've been looking at this book. Uh, It's around 20 sermons or so, and at the conclusion of today's sermon, we will have covered pretty much all 155 verses in the book of Ephesians. We spent a lot of time trying to understand and unpack this 2,000-year-old letter that Paul wrote to a group of Christians in the area that is called Ephesus. And we looked early on in Ephesians how Paul... Uh, began the letter by telling them, really telling them what he's been praying for them. And by doing that, he was giving them an explanation or a heads up of what he was going to be teaching them in the book of Ephesians. And in chapter 1, verse 15, he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers. And then here's what he's been praying for. Here is the the, the heads up of what the book of Ephesians is going to be about. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope. To which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul says, I'm writing this letter. I am praying for you that God would give you the Holy Spirit, that your that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, would be opened up so that you might understand and see the hope to which God has called you, the riches of God's glorious inheritance for the saints and the immeasurable greatness of the power that is for you, the very power that rose Jesus from the grave. Now, as Paul comes to the end of the letter, he uses these final verses to summarize 
what he has been telling them, the big ideas. And he uses it by using some key words in this last part of the, of the book. He talks about peace. He talks about grace. He talks about love. But there's more going on here than just a summary. Paul is giving the Ephesian Christians and through the Holy Spirit, us as well, a benediction. That word is a Latin word that literally means good word or good speech. Specifically, as it's used in God's word, it is a good word from God to his people. It's a reminder of God's promises over his people. It's incredibly important. Benedictions are incredibly important because it reminds God's people who they are. It reminds what God has done for them. And it also encourages them to go out into the world and to live like who they are. So Paul ends his letter with this benediction, a kind of recap of what is true and what they are to do as a result. Today what I want us to do is reflect on this benediction for just a few moments and to see what God says about who we are and what that means for how we live. He, he tells them they are a people and you are a people who are at peace with God and so you are to be a peacemaking people in your lives. He tells them that they are people who have been saved by God's grace and so they are to be people who go out and are gracious with others. And he tells them that they are a people who have been loved by God before the foundation of the world and so they are to go out and to be people of incredible love. Let's look and see what he says here. First, he reminds them of the peace that they have with God. He says right at the beginning of verse 23, peace be to the brothers and sisters. That word peace it's an incredibly important word. It's an important word in the entirety of the Bible. And Paul has used it a number of times here in the book of Ephesians. It literally traces its roots back to the Old Testament word shalom. And that word shalom is much more than just an absence of difficulty in our lives or the absence of hostility or, or absence of, of war or conflict, it has a much bigger meaning than that. The idea of shalom or peace has the idea of completeness, of contentment, of well-being, of security. It, it, it alludes to a state of unity or harmony. It has a sense of relationships that once were broken and splintered being renewed. It also has a sense and is used in the scriptures to speak of those situations where a payment of a vow or a due is needed and then is given. And both parties are satisfied. Both parties are content. Both parties are at peace. And Paul is reminding them as he gives them these, these words, these good words of God, these, these words of benediction, that they have peace with God. Those who are in Christ now know for certain that there is peace between them and their heavenly Father. 
Paul has reminded us throughout Ephesians that apart from Christ, there is conflict with God. It started all the way back in the garden with Adam and Eve. And ever since that time period, there has now been enmity or discord or a lack of peace between God and mankind. But in Christ, one of the wonderful messages of Ephesians says, In Christ, there is no more conflict, no more enmity, no more brokenness. What has been owed has been settled. The debt has been paid. God is satisfied. And now there is true peace between God and his people. Jesus paid that debt. And as we are connected to him by faith, we get the benefits of having that debt paid for us. Paul said that very thing in chapter 2, verse 14. He said to us, Jesus himself is our peace. It is only through Jesus that we can have peace with God. And we get it by being connected, being united to him by faith. We're reminded of that in our assurance of grace that we read earlier in our service from Paul himself to another another letter to another church in Romans. He said, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're in Christ this morning, you have peace with the creator of the universe. Just think a moment for the incredible implications of that truth. There may be times in our lives as God's people when he disciplines us. And the Bible tells us that that is not a pleasant thing to be disciplined. We don't like it. It sometimes hurts. It sometimes uh, impinges upon our autonomy. But God is doing that as a heavenly father. And what we know is true is that even when we feel like we're being disciplined, God is never eternally mad with us. Because we are at peace with Him. If you're in Christ, Jesus is your peace. Now and forever. There may be times when you doubt that that is true. There may be times when it's hard for you to imagine how God could be at peace with you. But in those moments we come back to what Paul says and we base what we know on the truth and word of God. And Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That means that the truth of the fact that we have peace with God, that Jesus is our peace, is to rule our hearts. In those moments when we struggle to believe it, in our thinking and in our feelings, we are to believe that we have peace with God because God's word tells us that. Another implication is we have to go back to what Paul said, that Jesus himself is our peace. That means that anything else that we look for in this life to give us true and ultimate peace will ultimately fail us. We might look at our career or having financial stability or the success of our children or a life that is free of pain and disease. We look to all of those kinds of things to bring us peace in this world. But all of those things will ultimately fail us. It is only Jesus that is our peace. It is only as we rest in him that we will find peace. We have been created to find our peace in the Lord first 
and foremost. One other implication of this idea of the fact that we have peace with God is that being at peace and being reconciled with God means that we are to be at peace and to be reconciled with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul said that very thing back in chapter 2 in verses 14 and following. He's speaking to both the Jews and the Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to what he tells them. Verse 14 of chapter 2. Jesus himself is our peace who has made us both one has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I know it's hard for us to to relate in some ways. To what the hostility must have been like between the Jews and the Gentiles who had been converted to Christ in the first century. But by all the scholars' estimations, it is probably the worst racial divide that the world has ever known. Perhaps the most violent that the world has ever known. And I understand it's hard for us to get our minds around that. But that's the reality of it. And Paul is saying that there is something that is even greater than that. And that is that if you are in Christ, you have peace with God and your brothers and sisters have peace with God and therefore you are to be at peace with one another. It's a requirement because of what the gospel has done in us in reconciling us to the Lord. He said something along those lines back up in chapter 6 and verse 15 when we were looking at the armor of God. He talked about the shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. It's a, it's a picture, it's a mental image of us uh, as God's ambassadors putting on the shoes that take us out into the world and interacting with our brothers and sisters in Christ and we are sharing the gospel of peace. We're called to be ambassadors of peace because of the fact that we have been reconciled in peace with our Heavenly Father. Peter said something similar in 1 Peter chapter 3. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Wherever we go, wherever we see brokenness, it is our responsibility to bring shalom, to bring peace. He also uses another word back in chapter 6. Not only peace be to the brothers and sisters, but grace, he says in verse 24, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. It really is one of the very central messages of the entire book of Ephesians. And perhaps the greatest passage in Ephesians that talks to us about the grace of God is at the beginning of chapter 2. Paul tells them and tells us, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. He gives them a description of what they were like before God got a hold of them. And then he says, but God, but God, because of his love for you, because of his grace, he saved you. He gave you the ability to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has showered you with immeasurable riches of his grace. We've talked about the fact that grace is not only me. It means not only that we don't get what we deserve to get. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, what do we deserve to get? We deserve to have judgment. We deserve to have eternal separation from our Heavenly Father. But because of his grace, through the Lord Jesus Christ, not only do we not get judgment, we also get what we don't deserve. Forgiveness of our sins, the righteousness of Jesus credited to our accounts, adoption into the family of God, acceptance with our Heavenly Father. Paul has shown us throughout the entire book of Ephesians that grace is a free gift and it is needed by all and it is given to all who ask. Paul has pointed out to us that the religious, churched, moral and righteous people need God's grace. And the unchurched, rebellious and unrighteous people need God's grace. The same grace. We all need it. I can't think of a better illustration of that is when Jesus uses parable in Luke chapter 15 to talk about the story that he tells about the two sons, the younger brother who was rebellious, demanding his inheritance so that he could run off and spend it however he wanted in rebellious ways and sinful ways. Eventually, the Lord brings him to his senses as he's sitting in a pigsty. And he goes back to his father to beg his father to let him just simply be a servant in his house. And how does the father respond? He runs to his son when he sees him coming and he falls on his neck and he kisses him and he loves on him. And he says, you will not be a servant. You are my son and we will celebrate that you have returned. But the parable has another son. It's the older son. And Jesus goes on to talk about that older son as one who was moral, who was upright, who followed the rules, who obeyed his father in every way, but then got angry and upset and envious when his father gave more attention to the younger brother than what he thought he was getting for himself. Both of these sons treated their father wrongly. (laughs) 
Both of these sons, the rebellious, sinful one who ran away from his father and the older, moral, upright, obedient son, both needed the same grace from their father. As we think about that, there's some incredible implications about this idea that we have been saved by grace. If you're here this morning and you're in Christ, then your relationship, your acceptance with the Lord is based completely on God's grace. There is nothing, as Paul says, there's nothing that we can do to earn God's acceptance and God's approval of us and God's smile over us. And if that's the case, then the security and the acceptance that we have with our Father can never be lost. Because it is anchored not in our obedience. It is anchored not in how good we are as a child of God. It is anchored in the finished and completed work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're in Christ, then our identity has been changed. We are now a child of God. We have been adopted and beloved and cherished and we are secure. And brothers and sisters in Christ, there is power in understanding that reality. There is power in understanding who we are as God's beloved children saved by grace. There is power to remove fear in our lives. There is power to remove pride in our lives. And it fills us as we meditate on that reality and truth with a strength so that we can go out and live like who we are. Because after all, after Paul got done telling us about this wonderful grace that is ours, simply because God has given it to us because of his love, he ends that paragraph by saying, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It fills us as we meditate on God's grace with the strength to go out and live like who we are as his beloved children. Another implication is that it breaks down the barriers that we have with other brothers and sisters with Christ. God's people come from all kinds of different backgrounds and walks of life, vocations, education backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, family experiences, political convictions, and even different beliefs on non-essential things. Some have grown up in the church never knowing a day when they didn't love and trust in the Lord Jesus, which is a wonderful testimony. Some have lived lives of very visible and dramatic sin and brokenness. But the truth is that we all need the exact same grace of God. And so it binds us together. It unites us to one another. We may be very different. We may have very different life experiences. We may have very different understandings of, of our backgrounds and how we have come to this point in our lives. And yet, we need the same grace. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. To be frank with you, it is really one of the only things that allows a church like Trinity to have a season of unity is that we rally around this wonderful truth of God's grace that I need and that you need. There's another word that he uses here as he speaks to these people with this benediction. He says, peace be to the brothers and sisters and love 
with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to you, be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. The idea of love is another key idea throughout the book of Ephesians. He mentions it 14 times in these chapters, three times alone, just in these two verses. God has loved us before we could love him back while we were still dead in our sins, he's told us. God loved us before we were even created, before the foundation of the world, he's told us. It is God's love for us which has led him to give us his grace and to make peace with us and to reconcile and redeem us to himself. It is a love that he has told us never fails and never lets us go. It is guaranteed and secured by the Holy Spirit himself. And notice how Paul speaks about this love and the benediction. Peace and love be to the people of God from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is reminding them, first and foremost, it is about God's love for you. God has loved you with an everlasting love, with an eternal love, with a love before the foundation of the world. And notice he mentions some other things about this love. It is a love with faith. It is a love that believes and trusts in the Lord and His Word. It is a love of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says. It is a genuine love for Jesus. It is a relational love. And it is a love that is incorruptible or imperishable. I think what he's saying there is that God's people will love with a love that is incorruptible because it's God who first loved them. Think of the incredible implications of this. Back in chapter 3, Paul prayed again for the Ephesians in verses 14 through 19 of chapter 3. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul is praying for them and he is praying, he has prayed for us that we would be rooted and grounded in God's love so that we would have the strength to understand the extent of God's love for us. Do you see how love is wrapped up through it all? He's praying that they would have the love of Christ coursing through their hearts and their minds such that they would have the strength to understand that love and then go out and extend that love to one another. We're supposed to be spending our time as God's people learning about how much God loves us. By making use of the means of grace, by reading His Word, by taking the Lord's Supper, by praying and asking the Lord to give us an understanding of the depth and breadth and height of His love, to be in fellowship with His people that will help us to spur us on to greater love for one another. Another implication of this is that God's love is meant to move us to love one another. That's all the way through this letter, particularly in the last three chapters. If you turn back to chapter 4, in verses 15 and 16, Paul says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, 
We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. God has given you all responsibilities. He's given you, all, uh, he's given you abilities and gifts to share within the body. You're all needed and the reason why we come together is because we love one another and as we come together and we use our gifts, Paul says, we will further our love for one another. He said it also in verse chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now what does that walk look like? With all humility and gentleness, with patience... Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He said it again in chapter five, verses one and two. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Do you see the wonderful truth? I mean, it's so plain right there. Walk in love. Why? Because Christ loved you. God's love for you is meant to move you to be people of incredible love for the Lord and for one another. We ought to constantly do what we did earlier in our service as we looked at 1 Corinthians 13 and reflect, is my love like that? Is my love patient, kind? Is my love characterized by what Paul says? My love should look like. After all, what's God's love for you been like? Let me finish with just two final uh, implications here. In, In verses 21 and 22, Paul introduces this interesting young man, Tychicus. Uh, We don't know a ton about Tychicus. He's mentioned several times in the New Testament. Uh, We know that he was a frequent companion. He was a friend of Paul during his travels and his ministry. He refers to him as a beloved brother. We know that he came from Asia. And there's some evidence that he actually came from Ephesus. And so he would have known these very people that uh, Paul was writing to. And Paul trusted this man because he gave him the letter of Ephesians and the letter of Colossians and probably the letter of Philemon to take those letters from Paul to the people that he was writing to. We know that he traveled with Paul on part of his third missionary journey, that he was with Paul when he was imprisoned in Rome, and he was even with Paul as he had that incredibly crazy trip on the way to Rome. He was likely Paul's scribe as Paul dictated these very words. And at the end, Paul takes away the pen and he finishes the letter with his own words. And he speaks to the people about this man that has been writing these words, Tychicus. And he says, I'm sending him to you so that he can bring this letter, so that he can answer your questions, so that he can encourage your hearts. Now, here's what's interesting. Tychicus' name in Greek comes from... The words that mean to be fortunate. Tychicus's parents named him Lucky. God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? Because here is Lucky sitting at Paul's feet, writing down about the sovereign, omnipotent, almighty God and his grace and his peace and his love. 
And what Paul is reminding us here, as we hear that Tychicus was the one that was coming to these brothers and sisters in Christ, was that this man had been changed from lucky to beloved. His identity has changed. He had become a child of God. He had trusted in God's peace and grace and love. And he was responding in his life by serving Paul. A faithful, humble, encouraging, genuine servant of the Lord. Now don't misunderstand. I'm not suggesting that this should be a be like Tychicus message. But he is a model for us of what happens when the gospel grips our hearts. To the degree that we understand God's peace and grace and love for us, to that same degree we'll be peacemakers and gracious and loving as God's people. A final implication for this is I want you just to reflect quickly here about the purpose and the power of a benediction. I know that for most of us, that that benediction just kind of gets slapped there on the end of the service, right? I mean, it's been a long service already, and we have we have sung a lot, and we've prayed a lot, and we've been reading uh, God's Word a lot, and you've listened very diligently to a sermon, and then we come to the end of the Lord's Supper, and then there's that one last thing as the pastor pronounces a benediction to you. I want to suggest to you that the benediction is one of the most important things that we do in the service. And we ought to treat it as such. There are lots of benedictions in the Bible. Probably the the best known one happens in Numbers chapter 6 as Aaron gives a benediction over God's people. There are many of them in the New Testament. Almost every letter that Paul wrote has a benediction or sometimes more than one. And just as a reminder, the word benediction means good word or good speech. It is a word of blessing. It is a word of grace. It is a word of blessing from God to and over God's people. It's a promise of what God will be doing for you as his people. It's a reminder Of who you are. Of what God has done for you. And an encouragement to go out and to actually believe that and to live in response to it. It's one of the most important things that we do in our service. There is power in a benediction. Not because of the one who's giving it. But because it's God's word over you. I don't know if you've paid attention or not that uh, at least when I do benedictions and I think mostly when Pastor Gordy does as well, we have God's word in our hands and one hand is raised. Now, when I was in seminary, we were actually required and when John was in seminary, we both were required to memorize a bunch of the benedictions in scripture. And the idea was, is that then as as we would come to a benediction, we would just rattle those off from memory. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But the reason why I choose not to do that is because I want you to see where the benediction is coming from. It's not coming from me. It's not coming from Pastor Gordy. It's not coming from whatever ordained minister is in front of you. It is coming from God himself. It is God's word pronounced over you. His good word of blessing. His promise of what he will be accomplishing for you. And what he has already 
accomplished over you. And so from time to time, I get people asking me, like, what should I be doing during a benediction? And we actually have margin notes in our bulletin from time to time. There's one in there today that actually tells you what you could be doing. Uh, There are several different postures that I think are appropriate. One is that you could simply just be looking up with joy and expectation of God's blessing being pronounced over you. Another one that's very appropriate would simply be to raise your hands with open palms as if to receive the benediction of God. That is entirely appropriate. Another is simply to bow your heads humbly as you recognize God's grace and His peace and His love being pronounced over you. But here's the point. Be intentional with the benediction. Don't just go through the motions. Don't overlook it. Pay attention. Believe that it's important. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you so much for not only that you have given us peace with you and that you have done it by your grace and that you have loved us from before the foundation of the world, but that you have told us that that is true in your word. I pray, Father, that you would truly make us people who would deeply desire to grow in our understanding of these things and that you would help us to make use of these wonderful blessings like the word of God that you've given to us. Help us to pour our lives into it that we might understand it, that we might come away with a greater understanding of your peace and grace and love. And as a result, Father, that we, like Tychicus, might be so gripped by your grace that we would go out and live like the people you've called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Gospel of Matthew, we read uh, Matthew's account of Jesus gathering his disciples in the upper room before he went to the cross. And Matthew tells us that as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I come, when I, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. As we come to the Lord's Supper each week, we come to the convergence of all three of these words that Paul used here in the benediction. Peace. We're reminded as we eat and drink that Jesus is our peace. It's through His sacrifice that we have peace. It's through His body and blood that have been given for us that we have peace with God. Grace. That it is not because of my goodness, of my righteousness, that I am able to come and partake of the Lord's Supper. It is by grace that I have been saved. No one can boast It's nothing that we deserve or could ever earn. It's simply by God's amazing, abundant grace. Love. God so loved the world that He gave His Son, Jesus, His body, His blood, that He might reconcile and redeem us to Himself. Paul also said there in the passage that we were looking at earlier that we are to respond with a love with faith. And so I would ask you this morning, do you have faith? I didn't ask you if you have strong faith. 
I didn't ask you if you uh, have confidence in your faith. I asked if you have faith, even a weak faith, grabbing on and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do, if you have made a public profession of that faith at Trinity or another church that believes the gospel and God's word as being true and right, if you've been baptized and connected yourself to a church, then these elements are for you as they come around that you might remember the peace and grace and love of God for you and that you might be strengthened as the Holy Spirit takes what we're doing and encourages us and strengthens our faith to go out and to believe these things. If that's not you this morning, then we would ask you to allow the elements to pass you by and instead to use the opportunity to, to pray to the Lord, to ask Him to reveal Himself to you. Let's pause and thank Him for giving us this table. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the peace that we have with you through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is our peace. We thank you for your love that has been for us before the foundation of the world. And even though we can't get our minds wrapped around that idea, we trust and believe it is true because you have said it is true. We're overwhelmed as we consider all of these wonderful truths. And we thank you for giving us this means of grace, the Lord's Supper, that points us once again to these wonderful truths. Would you help us not only to remember them, but would you strengthen us, help our faith to grow, that as we go out this week ahead, no matter what is awaiting us, we would be people of incredible peace and grace and love because of how you have worked those things into us and enabled us to believe them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.